Let me invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our passage this morning is Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has given some unexpected evaluations of what the good life is in the Beatitudes. He has told his disciples that they are salt and light. And then, as we looked at last week, he says the surprising thing that unless their righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they will not have a place in the kingdom. So Jesus begins to get into the meat of his sermon this morning in our passage. So let's attend to the words of Jesus, the words of the Lord together. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave it there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, you give us your word. We read it. We pray that by your spirit we would receive it, that we would understand, and that we would respond to right. Lord, give us the ears to hear. Give me the words to speak that are pleasing to you. And will all that falls short be quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to unpack what he has already said. And as I said earlier, last week, Jesus talked about the fact that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then he says that if we diminish the law... We have no place in the kingdom, and that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, we have no place in the kingdom. So he begins in this section, and in the following weeks, we'll look at aspects of chapter 5 and chapter 6 as he begins to unpack what does righteousness look like in the kingdom? What is this righteousness that surpasses the righteous people, the Pharisees, and the scribes who are the righteous describers of the law? What would such a righteousness look like? How is he going to describe that? If you were going to describe righteousness in the kingdom, where might you start? Would you start with the first commandment? The first of the ten commandments that Moses gave God's people? You could have no other gods before the true God. Or might you go to the ever-pressing issue of sexual fidelity? Or for Jews living under a pagan Roman order... Would it be a confrontation of idolatry such that they would not fall into temptation of worshiping the false gods? 
No, as Jesus talks about righteousness in the kingdom, he starts with the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. He takes up a saying likely used by the scribes and Pharisees, which combines the language of the sixth commandment with discussion of the process for trying murderers that comes from Numbers 35. If someone commits murder, they're to come to the council, they will be judged, and then the result should be being put to death. Why does Jesus start with the sixth commandment? What I'm about to offer is just an educated guess, but I think it might make sense to you. It doesn't change what Jesus says with it, but maybe it will help us consider why Jesus starts with the sixth commandment. If you've ever read a book about going into prison or jail, into that dangerous context, the prevailing wisdom, at least, of TV writers is to step up to the biggest, baddest bully in the yard and punch him in the nose. Show him who's boss. Now, as we're about to read, that type of action is not what Jesus is talking about. But rhetorically, that's what he's doing. Because if there's any realm of righteousness, if there's any realm of law-keeping that the majority of people would say, we've got this, it's murder. How many people would think that of all the commandments that God has given, they are guilty of murder? How many of us, according to the strict definition of killing someone intentionally, would think that we are guilty of murder? No, of all the people, they would say, when it comes to murder, we are the safest. And it's that assumption of safety. It's a, that assumption of righteousness. It is that strongest presupposition that we're okay, that Jesus confronts from the beginning. And so if he can show them that the righteousness of the kingdom, with regard to murder, is far beyond what they expected then their ears are going to be open when it comes to issues of community and idolatry and sexuality afterwards. Jesus gives some extra time and space to this issue as he starts his sermon. He addresses this issue of murder longer than some of the other sections. It's partly because this will become the lens through which they hear the others, that Jesus is talking about murder, but he's talking about murder as a lens through which they would understand righteousness in the kingdom. Righteousness through the lens of the sixth commandment. And what he will show them, if they are paying attention, is that righteousness goes beyond external conformity, and that righteousness is not merely about avoiding negative consequences, like coming before the council. And what Jesus does, what he begins here in these verses and continues throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus pushes into the heart as the root of righteousness, and therefore the root of unrighteousness. And then he calls us not just to avoid unrighteousness, but to the pursuit of righteousness. This morning we're going to look at the roots of righteousness and then the call to the pursuit of righteousness. Looking first at the roots. Jesus says, You cannot claim to be righteous when it comes to the sixth commandment, do not murder, by claiming you have not murdered someone. You can't say, I know I'm righteous when it comes to this commandment because, well, I haven't killed anyone. 
No, you cannot be claimed to be righteous if you are motivated by avoiding the judgment of the council. No, Jesus equates anger against a brother with murder. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, which is like the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not merely saying that anger can lead to sin. He is pointing out that the fault, the same fault within our being that leads to murder, is at work in our anger. That generally the experience of human anger towards another is sinful in the same way that murder is. Angry thoughts, angry words, angry actions flow from the same sinful root as murder. And thus, they invite the same judgment as murder. In verse 22, he says, if you're angry with your brother, you are liable for judgment. If you insult his brother, and the actual language there is, if you call your brother Raka, that is nobody or worthless, you'll be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is not trying to say these are three different levels of murderous behavior. Because calling someone Raka is probably worse than calling someone fool. No, he uses these three equivalents anger in your heart, calling someone a fool, calling someone worthless, and he ups the ante, he brings us forward to say, not only are you liable for judgment, not only should you be liable to go before the court of the land to stand trial, but you are liable for the spiritual judgment that comes from murder. Hell. Jesus is saying, whether you are just angry in your heart, whether there is an outburst of you worthless idiot, whether you call someone a fool, all of those place us in the same danger. Now let's think that through. Why is that? That may seem a bit absurd to us. How many of us letting loose a curse on someone else, an insult on someone else, or even just being angry within us thinks that it is deserving of death? let alone hell. Well, how does this work? See, murder is sinful because it devalues life. It takes the life of another, something that we as human beings don't have a right to do. God says, vengeance is mine. And the blood of those killed cry out to him for justice. Murder is about devaluing of life. And when we are angry with another, we are responding to some offense against us as an attack. And then what do we do? We justify some sort of response, whether it's a thought, whether it's a word or a deed, that in turn demeans their value. You insult me, you don't pay me back, you disrespect me, you make me feel low. I'm going to do the same to you. But every human being is an image bearer of God. Every person's life is valuable for that reason. Every life belongs to God. 
the passage is not, Jesus is not denying the existence of righteous anger. But if we look through the law and the prophets, if we look through all of Scripture at the examples of human anger, almost none of them would meet the standards of righteous anger. It might be helpful at this moment to introduce a definition, though, of anger. A Christian counselor who has written a lot on the subject, Robert Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, gives us this definition. He says, Anger is our whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Now, righteous anger would have to have a righteous trigger and a righteous evaluation of what has been done and a righteous response. We tend to fall short of the right, righteous anger in all of those categories. Just maybe let's look at it through, through an example I had this week. God was perhaps kind uh, this week to show me how much I needed this passage because I have had a lot of challenges. And I've been waiting on hold a lot this week. Issues with insurance, issues with a disappeared dishwasher. You've probably been on hold before. And at first it might be okay, but the longer it takes, the longer it goes without your problem being fixed, you begin to feel impatient maybe. You're frustrated that it's taking so long. Maybe your, your chest begins to get tight or you feel butterflies in your stomach, your heart rate increases. And the longer it goes on, you receive that weight, not just as an extended period of time, but being on hold begins to be a sign of disrespect. A sign that you don't matter because obviously your time doesn't matter. And then we, in our minds, or in our hearts, or in our actions, begin to grow angry with that person putting us on hold. We might become impatient. We might become rude. They've mistreated us. They've treated us as if we're not important. Then I will be justified to diminish their dignity and value. Our judgment is almost never clear because sin touches all aspects of who we are. We misperceive the situation. We misjudge. We assign motives to others that aren't there. We overreact. And in so doing, we devalue the life of those that God has made in his own image. It is right to respond to real injustice, but our response is forever touched and tensed with sinful distortion, just as with every other God-given emotion and desire. Only God sees perfectly. Only God sees holy. Only God is able to fully execute justice. So Jesus' exposition on anger and murder shows us that we are not God. And that we sin when we act as if we are through our judgment and condemnation of others or acting as if we should be God and have the right to say, who deserves my anger? Who deserves my put down? Who deserves to be written out of my book of who is important? And at the same time, he shows us that God wants all of us. God not only wants our external performance of actions, restraining our hand from murder, God wants our words. God wants our thoughts. He wants our motivations all to be submitted to him in righteousness. God wants all of us, not part of us. 
This is what it is to be a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we look at this passage, it invites us to examine other ways we devalue others in anger. Maybe resentment. Just choosing to avoid someone and write them out of our life. Gossip. Seething. Thinking the worst of others. May cause us to think of the danger we put ourselves in when we feed our anger with what we watch on TV, what we read on the internet, and whom we choose to listen to. Consider that it isn't just anger that causes us to devalue the lives of others in murderous ways, but there's whole other categories that would bring us in opposition to the sixth commandment. Jealousy, ignoring the poor or the weak or the elderly, choosing our safety, security, and comfort over that of others. If we say our life, our dignity, our pride is worth more than others whom we can step on, assault, or deny, we're in the same danger. One of the good ways for us to evaluate our hearts might be to see, are there any other emotions that come with our anger? Maybe we should seek other responses like lament. Remember, Jesus didn't say, blessed are the outraged, the angry commenters, the clickbait clickers. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Lament. We lament the sin in ourselves. We lament the sin in others. We lament how sin twists, injures, and distorts. Anger often fills us with a sense of energy, a sense of power, a sense of agency, and it makes us fall into the trap of thinking that we are the judge, jury, and executioner. We've got this. We can fix this if people would just do what I think, if they would just do what I say, if they would just conform to my standards. Lament sees the power of sin within me, the power of sin within others, and seeks a greater power to heal and to mend. We are to seek the one who judges justly, trust his judgment, come to Jesus who has claimed to fulfill the whole of the law and prophets for guidance as to how to obey and help to obey. When we see injustice that deserves righteous anger, we go to him and say, I don't know how to respond or write. I don't know how to fix this. I need you. We ask that his spirit would show us through direct conviction, through mirroring our actions in his word, or through the kind and loving confrontation of brothers and sisters of how we need deeper righteousness. Of our thoughts, words, deeds, and motivations. Jesus exposes that righteousness is more than external conformity. Righteousness is more than avoiding consequences of judgment. It is a heart issue of our affections, of our wills, and our desires. Righteousness is still bigger than just this deeper understanding of what transgression or sin looks like. So Jesus has something else to say. He begins to talk about offerings and lawsuits. Why would he go there? There's a helpful passage in the book of James, James chapter 1, 19 through 20. Jesus' brother says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He's calling on the wisdom tradition of Proverbs. And then he says this about being slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Even if we were rightly judging the situation, even if our anger was righteously responding, even if our reaction was righteous, that is not the fullness of righteousness. Righteousness is not just avoiding what's wrong or judging what's wrong. It is a pursuing of what is right and good. And what we will see is that anger does not produce what Jesus describes. No, we need love for that. We need love to pursue righteousness. Look at the first situation in verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. That may seem strange. God should be first in our, for, in our lives. You're going to worship God. You're going to offer to God a gift in sacrificial worship to God. And Jesus says, put that on hold. But shouldn't we put God first? Jesus is saying, yes, we put God first. But by calling us to stop and examine what's happening, he's asking, can we claim to enjoy righteous relationship with God while we are content with divided, broken relationship with our brothers and sisters. The issue is not separate your worship of God from worship of man. It's not that the relationship with men is more important than your relationship with God, but that you are deluded if you think you are in good standing with God while you are content to be in divided relationship with others. Righteousness is larger than our personal obedience or disobedience. If our neighbor, if our brother or sister is angry with us, especially such that it's obvious to us that we remember that, then their soul is in a precarious situation if we've heard the words of Jesus. If they're angry with us, they are in a murderous state. Love motivates us to do what we can to bring them out of that dangerous situation. The passage doesn't say if the worshiper here has done something wrong, whether they've sinned against their brother. It doesn't say whether it's just a big misunderstanding. But what he's supposed to do about it is the same. He's to go and be reconciled with that person. And then upon that reconciliation, come back make that offering in right standing with God. Now that might mean confession if they have sinned and that's what stirred up the anger of the brothers. Even if it wasn't sin, perhaps there has been a mistake that's caused damage. They need to acknowledge that and try to fix it if they can. Maybe it's just a big misunderstanding and they need to take the time and effort to clear the air so that there can be reconciliation. But they are motivated by love to understand that the right worship of God cares about the soul state of their brother or sister. Now notice the implication here. You can be in the right and still not be righteous. You can have done what you're supposed to do. You can have taken care of your personal obedience. You can be trying to worship God, but if you are not pursuing righteous relationship, if you are not pursuing 
peace and fellowship with others, you have not fulfilled the picture of righteousness that Jesus has in mind when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you have no place in the kingdom. We can't say, well, I'm right. I didn't do anything wrong. Their anger is their problem. No, righteousness cares for others and their well-being. And so we pursue their well-being in love to make things right. Romans 12, 18 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I do want to make a quick caveat. This seems to be a relational breach here. We don't know the nature of it, but it seems to be a, a situation, not an ongoing pattern necessarily. And so I just want to say that if someone is to take this passage and say, if you are in an abusive relationship with, a righteous, with, a, with an angry spouse, therefore it's your job to go fix the anger of your spouse, that would be a misapplication of this. Love should drive you to care about that angry spouse and their abusive tendencies, and even if you were to say, I'm, I'm righteous, I'm, I'm innocent of stirring that up to seek things that would bring them out of that state, but, but to say that you are responsible for the anger of someone else goes beyond what the passage is saying. The passage is saying, we may not be able to fix other people's anger. We may not be able to fix their abusive tendencies towards us. But love causes us to have concern for those who are caught in the trap of anger. In love for our neighbor, when there is a breach accompanying with anger, our care for them will lead us to seek to bridge that divide, even if it is the other party that is offended and upset, and it doesn't seem important to us. But then Jesus pushes it a little bit further. The pursuit of righteousness is to loving concern goes to our opponents as well. The next situation he describes here in verse uh, 25 says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. The accuser is an adversary, the person on the opposite side of a lawsuit here. This person who wants to take you to court, who wants to extract from you money or see you put into prison you have an obligation to go and come to terms, or the very literalistic reading of that is to befriend this person. You need to come to friendly terms with this person. Now, in this passage, again, it doesn't say what's the reason. Is the lawsuit over a debt, an unpaid debt, a contested debt? But we know that the situation is bad enough that someone is willing to take you to court to extract from you payment, and if you will not pay to send you to debtor's prison. That's what's described in verses 26. The judge judges against you, the guard takes you to jail, and you go to debtor's prison. Now, debtor's prison is not something described in the Old Testament law, but it became part of the experience of so many people in this day. If you could not pay a debt, you're thrown into prison. Now, we would say, well, then how can you pay off your debt? You couldn't. You were dependent not only for people to come and feed you and sustain you in those difficult circumstances, but for some family member, some redeemer, to raise enough money to pay off the debt to release you. Being in debtor's prison included suffering and deprivation and on occasion torture. 
Jesus is saying conflict, anger, it's destructive. Come to terms. Come to a friendly agreement. This brings twofold deliverance. First of all, for you. If you know the murderous intent that you can have in your anger towards others, then certainly you can understand how murderous intent in the heart of someone angry with you might bring them to the point of seeing you thrown into jail where you might starve and never see your family again. If you can be that angry with others, if you can dismiss them as rocket and fool and less than, then beware lest someone else view you that way and you experience that destruction. If you go make terms with them, whether that's making a payment agreement, whether that's finding another way of working off the loan, whatever it is, find a way to befriend them and make it right. But it also doesn't bring deliverance for you. If we've read the passage and paid attention, it brings rescue from them. Because if they are so caught up in their anger that they would want to see you thrown in jail, and never released until you paid the last penny with perhaps no hope of being able to pay that last penny, then their heart is in a place of destruction and turmoil before the Lord. Their soul is in danger. We're to have love for our accused, not only to avoid the consequences of conflict, but to rescue them from the consequences of their anger. Remember in Jesus' description of the kingdom, he says, happy or blessed are the peacemakers. Righteousness is not just about avoiding murder. It's not just about not being angry. It's not just avoiding assault with our hands or our words or our thoughts. But righteousness pursues peace. It pursues community and restoration Brothers and sisters, 1 John 4, 10 says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God. So we've been in breach. We've been opposed to God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus is preparing his disciples to understand the full extent of righteousness so that when Jesus goes to the cross, when Jesus dies for sinners, when Jesus lets Roman guards nail him to the cross, when he cries out from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they are doing, he, they are prepared to see that righteousness is not found within themselves. Righteousness is not found in the scribes and the Pharisees. Righteousness is found in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, if we have paid attention, shows us this righteousness is impossible on our own. But we can have righteousness when Jesus confronts our hearts, exposes our anger, and then pursues us in love to come to terms. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus for us this morning. His righteousness is truly, deeply, all the way righteous and causes him to pursue us in love. Jesus, we thank you because you love us enough to expose our hearts. You love us enough to say the wound goes all the way in. 
love us enough that even though the wound is self-inflicted through our selfishness, idolatry, and hatred, you come to fix it and make it right. Jesus, give us an extra measure of your spirit that we would humble ourselves to admit when we are angry and murderous in our hearts and that you would equip us to do the difficult work of pursuing people that are angry with us. But Lord, would we delight in the peace that reflects your kingdom when we pursue such righteousness. Help us in this work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.